Friends, as we turn to explore what the scripture in this parable has for us this morning, let's spend another moment in prayer. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Moose is a stinker. That's our dog. Moose Tracks is his name, and I tell him this on a regular basis. Moose Tracks, I say, you're a stinker. He is a now three-year-old Bernadoodle, a Bernese Mountain Dog poodle mix. He usually goes through life looking sweet and cute, and he very carefully hides all of his lesser traits behind this veneer of practiced obedience. Because as he's grown into himself and out of being a puppy, he's honestly become a very well-behaved dog just with a few notable quirks. Some of them might be my fault. We used to have trouble bringing Moose in from the backyard. He loved romping around outside there and barking the neighbors so much that he would be out there for hours on end, and so trying to be, bring him in would be an exercise in running down and chasing down the dog. And every time was a reminder that I am not as fast as most dogs. And so armed with a very basic understanding of puppy training, I tried positive reinforcement, and I would show a treat and toss it in the door as an incentive to go inside. This worked well. This almost worked too well. See, Moose has now matured enough that he chooses how long he wants to spend outside, and he comes up on the deck, and he barks at us through the window when he's done and wants to be let back inside. And so when he does, when he barks to say that he wants to come in, I'll go out and I'll open the door to let him in, at which point he will come close enough to look at me and sniff at my hand, and if I am not holding a treat, he won't come in. He wants to come in. I know that he does because if at that point I leave and go back inside, he'll bark even more furiously from the porch. But no matter how many times I open the door for him, he will not come in until I can show him the treat he will get for coming back into the house. You understand, this makes no sense. He wants to come inside, and he can trust me to take care of him, because if we're being really honest, I have a track record of pampering Moose more than he probably deserves. He's going to get plenty of treats in his life and in any given day, but even so, he will not do what he wants to do without getting something for it. Sometimes dogs are strange creatures, and sometimes they act far more like humans than we give them credit for. I had a preaching professor once who cautioned against using what might be called inappropriate metaphors, telling us not to compare people to things they shouldn't be compared to, and gave us the example in class, don't compare our relationship with God like a dog who loves its owner. And I remember thinking, what could be so wrong about that? But he explained that he wouldn't want to be compared to someone's dog. Ah, well, let me tell you, he wouldn't have been so lucky. See, I love all the dogs I've ever had, quirks notwithstanding. They were loyal and smart and kind, and most of them even funny. And I did not much like my preaching professor, on the other hand. He was pretentious and condescending and had the audacity to correct my sermons like I was some rube in an introductory preaching course who'd only ever preached two sermons in his life and didn't know what he was doing. And this was very disappointing to me, considering that I had registered for this course introduction to pre preaching, having only ever preached two sermons in my life, and I really wanted to get better. 
But eventually, I learned to listen to the wisdom in his critiques, but I was still never entirely convinced by his advice on metaphors. Half of Jesus' own parables are metaphors that leave us a little insulted about who Jesus would dare compare us to. They start as if Jesus understands us. Oh, we're hard workers who show up on time and do the work for the fair pay. And then Jesus throws in these twists that ruin the whole darn thing and make us look bad. We grumble when people get more than they deserve to show that Jesus really understands us. These parables of Jesus, like today's scripture, are intended to direct our attention inward so we might really see ourselves. We might not be as okay as we thought. We might need to learn to see the world differently, to see ourselves differently, to see the kingdom of heaven while we are still here on earth. In the story leading up to this parable, in the chapter right before what we heard in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is approached by a rich young man who wonders what he can do to gain eternal life. And so Jesus tells him that he should sell all of what he owns and give it to the poor, an instruction that leaves this rich young man disheartened and leaves the disciples a little bit shaken. I mean, who then can enter the kingdom of heaven? Jesus says it is easier to put a camel through a needle than for the rich to go to heaven. But then Peter, one of the disciples who is never slow to speak his mind, realizes that this might be good news for him and the rest of the disciples. And look, he says to Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. So what will we get? And Jesus responds with maybe a note of critique in his voice, even as he promises that those who have left anything to follow Jesus will receive 100 times more and will inherit eternal life. But, Jesus says, many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. And then he tells this parable. It would seem that Jesus might be trying to assure his disciples that even as they leave their comfort and security behind, they're going to be cared for. But Peter's question isn't the right one to ask. And the whole worldview that would lead to asking a question like this one might be one more thing that should be left behind. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus continues, is like a landowner who goes out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. And the story continues as we heard. The landowner goes to the street corner where the willing workers are waiting, and he hires them all, agreeing that they would receive a denarius which was a typical day's wage in that time. Nothing extraordinary, but more than enough to cover the needs of any worker and their family. And then later in the morning, 9 a.m., the landowner goes out and hires everyone else who is gathered at the street corner and agrees to pay them what is right. Then the landowner does the same thing at noon and at 3 p.m. And then finally, when it's nearly 5 and the workday is practically over, this landowner goes one more time to hire more workers. And they come and they join the crew for what, a few minutes? And then it's time to call the day, and the manager of the farm lines up the workers to be paid. And those who receive, came last receive a denarian. And then those who came at three, and those who came at noon, and those who came at nine receive a denarian. And then those who were hired first thing in the morning, much to their dismay, considering how much more they had worked than so many other there on the farm that day, also received just a single denarian. And they grumble, and the landowner balks. Oh, are you resentful because I'm so generous, he asks. And the parable ends. 
Those who are last will be first, Jesus says, now a second time, and those who are first will be last. At this point, most commentators pause to make the same remark. Obviously, they say, Jesus didn't mean for any of this to apply to real workers and real jobs in the same way that he surely never meant for the rich man to sell all of his belongings. One commentary said, well, Jesus wasn't trying to write an employee-employer handbook. And another said, well, just imagine if a company were to pay employees hired in December the same wages as those who worked a full year, well, then they would soon have trouble finding anyone in the office from January to November. And we think, well, of course, that's how the world works. But at the same time, there's been a movement among some companies recently to offer unlimited vacation, unlimited time off. And it's still relatively early, but the indication so far is that those who have unlimited PTO actually take less time off than those who don't. A relationship to work that we avoid it whenever we can and we endure it just to make enough money to live may not be entirely accurate. In fact, studies have shown that increasing someone's salary doesn't impact their job satisfaction. You can undermine someone's job satisfaction by not paying them appropriately, but you can't make someone happier at work by paying them more. And you can't make them work harder by paying them more. The relationship between work and what we get for doing work may not be as correlated as we thought. In fact, the things that lead to job satisfaction, to enjoying the work that we do, are all of what we might expect if we thought about it for a moment longer. Things like having meaningful, engaging work that challenges us and uses our skills, having good support for feedback, critique, and encouragement, and having a strong community of colleagues to work with. The workers who arrived first at the vineyard may have been looking for job satisfaction in the wrong place. They wanted to be paid more to justify the extra work that they did. But what's the real unfairness here? That they all got paid the same, or that they got to work longer? Which is a strange way to put things. If we assume that work is some sort of terrible beast sent to hound and plague us all our living days, but what if work isn't a punishment? At least not the work of the parable, and certainly not the work that God gives us to do. For God is good, and God created the world to be good, and placed us in the world to enjoy it, perhaps. It could be that what we assume about work, which is that it is a burden we have to bear until we get to the point where we can finally retire, may be the wrong way to look at the world around us. And to be sure, some jobs are like that, but perhaps they shouldn't be. And this doesn't necessarily mean that we should be swinging ourselves all the way to the other side of the spectrum to all things debauchery. There are plenty of sermons against that, but there might be plenty of space just the same between debauchery and drudgery. There might be plenty of space in the middle for things that are good and life-giving and yet still work. O mortal God has told you what is good, Micah said once in the Old Testament book, 
given, uh, written under his name, to do justice and mercy. God asks us to do things, to work, to be sure. And it may not be easy. In fact, it might often be hard. It might require leaving lots of things behind. But to expect that we be miserable because it is, in fact, work might be misunderstanding the God who calls us to it. Did not Jesus also say once, my yoke is easy and my burden is light? Come to me and I will give you life in the full. The work that God has for us might be life-giving. And so what is the real unfairness here? That everyone gets the same or that some of the workers got to be fully employed, engaged in life-giving, renewing, restoring work for the whole day long, while others had just a few minutes before the day was over. It could be that the denarian they all received is in fact not a compensation for the work at all. A good and compassionate and generous landowner would want to make sure that everyone had what they needed to live. A good and compassionate and generous anyone would want to make sure that everyone has what they need to survive to make it to the next day. The denarian may not be a compensation for the work. The work may be its own reward. The work may be a gift from God. Though, of course, if we go down this line of thought, too far, we'll inevitably push up against that moment where we will think, well, what about the lazy people? Surely there are lazy people in the world. We have met them. We know them sometimes. We are them. How does this all play out, knowing that some people are just trying to get out of doing anything? And then we might picture that crowd of workers that the landowner encountered just a few minutes before five, just a few minutes of work left in the day, what did they look like? Were they not young and restless, just gotten up out of bed, didn't have the decency to try to show up any earlier that day? Don't we know the type in any generation or any time? There might be that image of what the lazy person looks like. Sometimes it's the younger generation or it's a certain type of person who looks a certain type of way. But if we find ourselves still in the parable, still reading the parable along, we'll discover that the landowner, just a few minutes before five, goes to the street corner and finds those who have not yet been working that day. And so the landowner says, perhaps suspiciously, perhaps expecting that they are lazy people, who could have been working and should have been working, but didn't. And the landowner says, why haven't you been working? And to a person, everyone there said, because no one would hire us. It would seem that in the world of the parable, there is no one who does not want to work. In the world of the parable, there is no one who doesn't want to get in on this good thing happening at that farm where everyone gets hired. Because curiously, there's no indication that there are any more workers needed at the end of the day. I mean, maybe it was a big harvest day, but how much are you really going to get 
out of a few extra people for what, 15 minutes, 30, a few more than that? And yet this landowner, absurdly generous, goes and hires every single person at the street corner every time they go. Everyone who wants to come gets to come. Everyone who wants to work gets to work. And the landowner cares for their needs, ensures that at the end of the day, they have what they need to eat, to have a place to live, have a way to make it to tomorrow. At the end of the day, everyone gets their daily bread. And so what's the real unfairness here? That everyone is paid the same, or that there are those who want to work who are not being hired? And if we pull that thread out of the parable and into the ways that we turn this parable into a metaphor, then what is that but the barriers that keep those who want what we have in the church from being a part of the church? Is it that the landowner goes out at the end of every day to find those who want what we have, good and life-giving work, meaning in our lives, something to do and to strive after and to hope for? And could it be that the landowner goes out and says, why isn't you're not here, my farm, yet? And they say, because no one would hire us. We tried. We tried to get in, but no one would let us in. And it could be for any number of things. It could be all of those normal barriers that we have thrown up in society around gender or race or sexuality or anything else, about the stereotypes that lead us to believe that some people don't want to work and some people don't want what we have here. Some people are too far away, too far gone hopeless cases. And I suppose it could be that we who have been given such a great gift have started to believe it might just be worth drudgery, tasks to do and to do again and to do every day until finally we get to retire and receive whatever God has waiting for. It could be that we have been given a gift of brilliance and wonder, and we treat it as though it were a burden. The landowner goes out and says, why is it that you are still here? And they answer, because no one would hire us. It could be the unfairness in this parable is not at all that everyone receives the same wage. It might have everything to do with the work that we have been given and those we allow to share it with us. And it could be that we need to be broken in our idea, in that connection between work and pay so that we can stop focusing on what we're going to get from what we do so that we can see that the work itself is its own reward, that the door is open to come on in. And if we don't fret over what we're gonna be given because we want to go in in the first place, well then we might find life in the full. We might find a gift that is good enough 
to share, we might find that this journey is one of wonder and hope and delight, that we cannot wait to wake up each day, to travel even further, that we cannot help but invite others to join us on. It could be that there is something good for us in the living here and now that we needn't fret so much over what might be waiting for us down the road. Friends, may it be so. Amen. I invite us now to continue